Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest today, Daniel Hudspeth, is the CEO of Discover Health, a concierge medical practice business with locations in California, Boston, and soon to be Seattle. During his search, Daniel did extensive research on private pay healthcare and eventually developed a thesis to acquire multiple concierge practices across the country. We talk about this pivot during his search, what the concierge model looks like for patients and doctors, why it's an attractive business as an investor and operator, and what growth could look like over the coming years. Given my mom is a family physician, this episode felt really close to home, and I enjoyed the chance to connect with an entrepreneur like Daniel, who's looking to build a better model in patient healthcare. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports, and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email jerry at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small businesses, here is Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Is there a quality of earnings evaluation of the business? So the quality of earnings, or, or Q of E as we call it, is not evaluation of the business, but it serves as the basis for valuation. Valuation generally is derived from based on a multiple of earnings or EBITDA as we um, we call it, and it's driven specifically by market dynamics, right? The industry of the business, the size of the business, and also just the, the customer profile among other things. What the QB does is it provides an, an earning profile about the business, and that. Know, typically entails uh, the various types of uh, adjustments we make to the, the company's earnings. Naturally, that's oftentimes a, a buy side analysis uh, that we perform on behalf of the buyers doing the due diligence as we evaluate the business earning profile. But we're also seeing a lot of uh, sellers uh, requesting us to perform this sell side quality of earnings and for the reason of preparing the business for sale. And that's to anticipate, you know, what the buyers will find and and prevent a, any potential surprises that could lead to renegotiating the valuation of the, the the value of the business and prevent the deal from falling apart. And ultimately, that facilitates and speed up the closing process. To learn more about Hood and Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong dot com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong dot com for more information. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Oakborne Advisors, Ravix Group, and Overly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And add to the episode. Do you want to jump in and kind of walk through your journey as a as a searcher and your your kind of pivot near the end and then the business you're working on now with MyDoc Plus and everything after that? So I started the search fund in 2015 after I graduated from business school. I was living in North Carolina at the time. And I started a traditional search. So I worked with traditional search fund investors. I didn't go the self-funded route. And 
went to work quickly, sort of doing an industry-driven search. I felt like that was the best approach for me. And so I had my set criteria, you know, recurring revenues, customers with high switching costs. I was looking for an industry that was sort of insulated from economic shocks, strong industry tailwinds. I had my EBITDA and revenue targets. And I was looking for primarily service businesses. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I'd looked a little bit at software, but I was mostly looking at services businesses because I was, I'm not a particularly technical guy and, and didn't have a technical background. And so I wanted something that I could understand easily and, and, you know, shorten my learning curve as much as possible. And so I quickly kind of zeroed in on private pay healthcare as an industry that I thought was worth really digging into. That started to look like a lot of different things. I looked at home health. I looked at private duty nursing. I looked at home therapy businesses. And this is all sort of during the first year, year and a half of my search. And as part of that effort, I came across a a very successful, large concierge medical practice that had really great margins and really checked all the boxes that I mentioned earlier. It was 100% recurring revenue, just a, a membership-based primary care practice. And just for the uninitiated, when I say concierge medicine, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I'm talking about primary care, internal medicine, peds, or family medicine, where a doctor charges an annual membership fee to be a part of the practice. Sometimes they bill insurance. Sometimes they bill Medicare. They don't have to. Different models do different things. But in this case, when I'm talking about concierge medicine, I'm just talking about generally the the retainer-based primary care model. And just for context, what that means is that it's it's a alternative option to a traditional insurance-driven healthcare model wherein a patient, you know, maybe they pay a small deductible, but generally their insurance is covering a, a big chunk, like 80% or more of their healthcare costs. And so they go to the doctor, they, they get a physical, the doctor bills all that back to insurance. Maybe they pay a small copay or deductible up front. But the doctor, you know, is dependent on 80 or 90% of, of insurance revenue to make their financial, to hit their financial targets. And so typically in that traditional system, a doctor sees 25 to 30 patients a day. Um, they are, the visits are very quick. And to get into a doctor like that, you have to generally book an appointment pretty far in advance. And so the concierge model tries to break that mold by charging retainer fee. It allows a doctor to not be dependent on insurance revenue as much. And then they can have smaller patient panel sizes and spend more time with the patient. So it's a win for the doctor, a win for the patient. The doctors are less likely to burn out. Patients get increased access to their doctor for an annual fee. And from a business perspective, again, I was looking at this because I thought, thought it was it really fit all of our criteria from a search fund model and what we were looking for. So digressing back, I found this doctor's practice. It was really appealing from a criteria perspective and it got me interested in concierge medicine and what that, what it might look like to search in that space. And so I ended up searching in that space for a little while, looked at a number of companies that are sort of on the periphery of the concierge medicine space. We looked at a, a company that did, practice conversions to the concierge model, sort of like a consulting type company. 
back office services company. We looked at another roll-up strategy that was sort of just getting started. And for various reasons, mostly related to, to cost and the, the price of equity, these weren't that appealing from an acquisition perspective. But it, I was still intrigued with the model and felt like it was really compelling and a business that I wanted to be in. And so I went back to my investors probably around month 20 or 21 during the search and shared with them that you know, I felt like there was a real opportunity here. I ended up drafting a first um, investment memorandum that w- kind of outlined what I thought was a really unique de novo opportunity to sort of stress, raise capital and then start these practices from scratch. What we ended up doing was my investors came back to me and they said, we're interested in continuing this conversation with you, but we think you have more work to do on the front end and in order to really you know, flesh out this business model and to get some of our questions answered, we recommend you extend your search, raise a little bit of extra capital and focus on this full time and just see if we can revisit it in six months after you've done some more research. And, and we, we feel like we've, we've sort of looked at this from all angles. And so I did that, I raised additional search capital, gave myself another nine months of runway or so. And then I spent time really thinking through the pros and the cons of the model or, and the de novo approach and ended up calling, I think like 50 doctors and doing these doctor interviews and having a lot of conversations around marketing and how long it took them to get to a full panel. That was really the existential question for us. Like full panel being like a full, like book of patients to work with. You exactly. Mean? Yeah. So like what we found was like full in the concierge world meant about 300 patients. Right. So like you start with zero. If you start with zero, how long does it take you to get there? Right. And at some point you break even in terms of your cost, but then to get profitable, you really need to reach full capacity. And so, so we ask ourselves, how long does it take to get there? And we found is that, you know, it's typically a two to three year period at least. And that's, that's if you start with a doctor with an established reputation, really well known in the area has sort of a cachet with you know, other doctors and other patients in the area and can start to bring people into his or her practice. And so we realized, okay, that's going to be a very deep investment trough for us, right? If we start from zero, we're going to invest in two to three years worth of a doctor's salary, not to mention the overhead, you know, hiring a medical assistant or someone else to help manage the practice and the real estate costs and all that. And so we realized that uh, it was going to be more attractive if we could buy some of these existing practices and buy them outright and take on their existing patient panels and then operate them and then leverage that cash flow to to buy some more and then maybe one day build our own right so that's that was the fundamental shift that happened in our our thinking around the business model and so I ended up writing a second sim which is a investment memorandum and um went back and raised capital in July, 2018. We raised money then, and then we were sort of off to the races to go and find and buy the first practice that we, that fit our model. And so fortunately we found that practice fairly quickly. It was a five doctor practice in San Francisco. And so we, we completed that acquisition in December, 2018. And then I moved my family from North Carolina to California and 
started to work very closely with the team there. And the, the, one of the founders of that practice became our chief medical officer, which was, has been an integral part of our business. And so, and he's been a real thought partner to me and a fantastic business partner. And so we worked together to then kind of lay the groundwork to build out a wider network of like-minded physician practices from there. And so then once we kind of got our feet underneath us, I spent maybe nine months, 10 months kind of just learning the business and being in the practice every day, all day, we started to look at other acquisition opportunities and started to do small acquisitions around us. And so from that point in late 2018, early 2019, we started looking at new deals and we're just about to complete our ninth acquisition total. So we've done two in Sacramento, two in Napa, one in Santa Barbara, one in Marin. And then last year we did one in Boston with two, two additional doctors there. And the backstory on that is we hired another VP to kind of manage our East Coast expansion. And then we are almost closed, fingers crossed, on an acquisition in Seattle. And so we're hopefully going to be in three states very soon and looking to expand more broadly. I forgot to mention we did another capital raise last summer. So we, did, we, we raised some follow-on equity investment. And that's helped us kind of continue the the upward trend and and we're committed to continue to do that and try to be in more states by the end of the year and continue the the acquisition cycle and so we've also built up the corporate team quite a bit we've had some great players on the operations and and finance side and we are sort of in this continuing to kind of be in this growth mode where we're thinking through, okay, what does the next phase look like? We'd love to do de novos. If at some point we feel like we can crack the code on how to organically grow these practices from zero without an existing practice there already. And so that's something we're working on internally. I should mention, we changed our name to discover health, which is the name of the first practice we bought in 2020, I believe. And so we use discover health as kind of an, an umbrella brand and, that's been our customer-facing brand, for lack of a better word, since then. I think that's kind of the, the story in a nutshell. Yeah, there's lots of places to go with with your discussion so far. First, though, doubling back, your investors asked for... They had, it sounds like they had a couple additional questions for you to work on during that six-month extension you had in your search. What sorts of questions did they have that you hadn't fully fleshed out quite yet? Like what, what was important to them that you hadn't gotten measured at, at that point? Yeah, so I think the big question for them was, how confident do we feel that we can grow these practices within a set amount of time, whether that was one year, two years, three years? And the answer up front was we, we didn't know. We didn't know whether we, we speculated that we could grow a practice, as I mentioned, kind of you know within a three-year period. But th- as I mentioned too, that's a, that's a long time period that we, you know, with a lot of money up front that it was going to take to break even. And so we wanted to pressure test those assumptions. And, and, and when we did do that, we realized that we, it wasn't the path we wanted to go down, that we didn't want to just start pure de novo. And so that was a, a pretty critical shift for us. I think the other, the other questions that they wanted me to kind of wrestle with was like one, one around geography. 
right? Can we do this just anywhere? Where's the most ideal location to start this? We ended up in the second model coming up with sort of 10 metropolitan areas where we thought we really need to focus on these areas because if we were able to buy a practice in that, that area, we would have the ability to expand outwardly from, from that sort of epicenter location. And if we were outside of one of those 10 areas, then we would always be trying to get into one of those areas, right? Because that's where really the, the opportunities were for acquisitions, right? So generally, most concierge practices across the country are, you know, within 30 miles of a major city. And they are, those, they're really clustered around areas of high, high net worth, high wealth. Because traditionally, the people who have gone after concierge medicine are folks who have more disposable income and they want more access and they're willing to pay for it. This is always the case. And we have patients who are very much, you know, solidly middle class that would not be considered wealthy by most metrics, but continue to, you know, seek out and pay for concierge medicine. But we knew in terms of kind of our broader growth potential that we needed to kind of be aware of demographics and, and put ourselves, you know, give ourselves the best chance of success. And so we, we, we spent some time thinking through that too. And you also mentioned that the, the workload for the typical doctor in concierge is a little bit less. There's a little bit more breathing room in their schedule. Does that make it easier for recruiting or expansion if you wanted to go, if you eventually decided to go de novo or even just adding doctors within your practice, could you go to that that doctor in an area who has that cachet and reputation and say, hey, come over to concierge. There's a lot of ways that your life with our team won't be better in schedule and anything else. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that last part around your life being better. I, I think, because I want to make the distinction, I don't think that the work itself is necessarily less, but there's a lot more balance. And you're a lot less likely to burn out in a concierge model. And here's why. So a traditional, let's say a, a traditional family practice doctor who works in a outpatient primary care clinic, they're going to see 25 to 30 patients a day. And they're going to see whoever comes to the clinic. And when they see those patients, they're going to bill insurance or Medicare for that visit almost exclusively right there, unless you're in like a direct pay practice. And those are, you know, those exist, but you know, that's not the traditional model. And so in a traditional insurance driven model, these doctors, they're seeing such high volumes that they're spending less, they have to spend less time with each patient. And if they get behind, they get rushed and they don't have a lot of time for the other stuff that they might need to do in order to provide a great healthcare outcome. So for example, follow-ups or a more extended patient interview or a specialist referral or doing some research on a particularly complex case or, you know, talking to their colleagues and running ideas by them and, you know, running cases, things like that. You just don't have the, the time in the day to do a lot of that if you're seeing 25 to 30 patients a day on a regular basis. So what you see is these doctors, they clock in, they're, you know, they're clipping through their patients and then they're leaving and they leave and they feel 
burnout in a lot of cases, maybe sometimes dissatisfied with the level of care that they've been able to offer. On the flip side, patients also feel the same way. They feel like I didn't get any time with my doctor. Now, if I want to make an appointment, I got to make it, you know, another three weeks in advance because that doctor's booked up, but, you know, or I'll go to urgent care or see an MP or PA, you know, which can be fine depending on the issue. But again, they're not, they're not able to necessarily see that same person again, you know, for a, a, a period of time. And so continuity is limited and it's harder for a doctor to track along with the patient on a complicated issue over a longer period of time because they're not necessarily seeing the same patients on a regular basis. Sometimes those patients are seeing multiple physicians in the area, so they're only relying on charts, chart notes. And, you know, every doctor has a, you know, different level of detail in their charting. And so it just kind of depends on who you get and what they put in their chart. And so for all those reasons, back to your original point, right? With concierge medicine, you, you can recruit based on work-life balance issues and trying to, trying to appeal to a doctor who wants to practice medicine at a different pace. And I'll add, primarily, the best fits for us are doctors who really want what we call relationship-driven medicine, right? Where the ability to build long-term relationships with their patients and then track along with them on their healthcare journey, right? As opposed to being sort of sort of a one-stop, let me see if I can fix your problem. See you later, if ever, right? Those are the doctors we look for. And I think for the right kind of doctors looking for that fit, we can recruit on those, those aspects of the job. I will note, you know, concierge medicine, when you pay for a membership in one of our practices, you get 24-7 access to your doctor. And so that means if you, you get their phone number, we, you can reach out to them in off hours and they'll answer the phone. Now we have some shared call. If the doctor goes on vacation or something, you know, you might, you know, get the doctors on call, but you're going to speak to a doctor and they're going to talk to your doctor about that call and your doctor will follow up with you, you know, when they're back. And so the job of a concierge doctor is, is, you know, goes beyond their typical 40 hour work week in that sense. Again, the doctor that this appeals to is the doctor who wants that. They want that kind of, again, relationship-driven care model, they want their patients to call them if it's Saturday night and they're having, you know, a critical health concern come up. They, they want to be the first person they call. You know, obviously, if it's an emergency, they'll send you to the hospital, but they want uh, to be a part of that conversation. They don't want you to wait until Monday to try to make an appointment. And so, from that perspective, like, there is kind of an expanded scope of work in the sense that concierge doctors have to be more available. But because you have that other balance in your work, you know, your, your day-to-day sort of workflow that, you know, it's, it's kind of a trade-off that a lot of doctors would consider to be worth it. And it's worth noting, right, because you have a, a much lower volume, you can also be a lot more flexible around your schedule if it's a concierge doctor. So if you need to take your kids to school, if you need to step out and go to a you know, a piano recital or something like that. Like that's all doable in a concierge model because you have that, that built-in flexibility within your schedule and the ability to move some things around if you need to. And again, you know, doctors who, who are good fits for us are looking for that kind of thing. I think I mentioned before, my mom is a family practice physician. So I've seen a lot of the things that you've described with the insurance-driven model. 
When you think about the other ways that you can make that physician's life better with concierge, given that you're working primarily with a higher income clientele, does that give you more resources to improve their life day to day? Like scribing, for example, are there is there better software or some other things throughout the day or within their workflow that you can give them that make things smoother and easier on their end? Yes, to some extent. I mean, we, we've, um, you know, been able to provide dictation software, for example, to our doctors this year. We, we do have some pricing power, right? So if we're, if we feel, you know, crunched because we can't offer the kind, the level of service that we want to, to your point about having a, you know, a demographic that's a little more insulated to economic shocks, right? We can, we have some elasticity with our pricing, right? So we can, we can adjust pricing. And even if it means our volume of patients goes down, we can then provide a little more hands-on care, you know, and, and still, you know, make the same margins. And so we've seen that to be true in multiple cases throughout the, the lifetime of this business. But I'll say, I think the biggest thing we can offer these doctors in that respect is time, right? We can, just the flexibility of the schedule allows them the ability to, to be, to focus on whatever matters most at that moment for their patients. And that, that I think is more valuable than, than any, you know, additional kind of, you know, support that we could offer. I, w- I will say it's a fairly physician driven model. We try to operate lean. We don't have tons of additional staff supporting the doctors. They, that's part partially, because it just doesn't make sense economically to, to to add layers, but and you don't need it, right? When you're not dealing with such high volume, but it's also because in a concierge model, patients and doctors they they both want the physician to be more hands on, right? So they want that doctor's time, and they're paying for that. With this being generally a like from a patient perspective, a higher quality service, you have more access, and it's easier to schedule appointments and more one to one relationships. Does that have a lower churn compared to other more insurance-driven practices? Or like, what does churn dynamics look like at Discover? For physicians? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we're still too young to have a lot of data on that. A lot of the doctors that we've acquired are doctors who are retiring within a few years. But then as they've passed the baton and, and stepped out because they've retired, we've hired new doctors. And yeah, we're, we're hoping that it, what you say proves out to be true, right? That if you get the right physicians in there, that they lock in with us. And this is a really long-term career for them. And I would say we, we're seeing some of that, but it's still a little too early to tell. I mean, we're only a four-year-old company. And so we don't have a, we don't have a lot of long-term data, right? A lot of the doctors we've acquired have stayed on for a year or two. And then we've had a few people come in and out who have stayed on, you know, since then. and so. It's hard to measure broadly. What about on the patient side? In terms of like, like, will they stay with their doctors long-term because of the concierge model? Yeah. Yeah. Patients lock in. Those who really want this service can stay for years and years and years. So we have really long-term patients in our practice. We have some that have been with their doctors for, you know, 20 plus years. And so when you, when you do it right and when everything works well, you have you can have extremely 
long customer lifetimes. And so that may, that may be the wrong word, but yeah, your, your customer tenure, I mean, I should say, you know, staying with you, they can stay, you know, for decades. In many cases they have, because they've found a doctor who agreed again to be their partner in their healthcare journey. And they're able to lock in with them. And then as things get more complex, right, as I mentioned earlier, the switching costs are high. You don't want to, you know, uproot from that medical practice and move somewhere else and have, have to relearn a whole new process and a whole, you know, learn that, you know, make forge new relationships with a whole new team of people. So if, as long as the care is really great and, and people feel like the, the price is commensurate with the value they're getting, then people will stay for a long, long time. Yeah, I think I've only moved doctors when I've physically moved cities. I could, I can't think of a time I've moved within a city to a different doctor. Yeah, well, it's a pain, right? I mean, you have to have someone transfer your charts. You have to go, you have to find someone who's a good fit, right? And someone you're comfortable with. You know, once you go through all that, and by the way, if you're on insurance, right, then you have to make sure they take your insurance and that they're they're part of your your system. So once you lock in with someone, unless you're really dissatisfied with them or the service you've gotten otherwise, there's no there's not a lot of incentive to just, you know, move around, right? To just try a bunch of different different doctors. You know, people will supplement, they'll do things like, you know, go to one medical or something like that, but it's a different that's a little bit of a different thing. And I think especially for older adults, right? Folks who are starting to encounter more serious health issues, you know, they become even stickier, right? Because now you really want somebody who, who is closely monitoring you and, you know, tracking with your history. When you go and approach these different practices, you mentioned the original MyDoc Plus with five doctors and then East Coast and Seattle. Are these businesses run by the physician primarily, or is there a business manager in place at some point or some hurdle rate of size? So some of these doctors do have internal business managers. You know, the typical model that we see is, but yeah, let me clarify. They're, they're definitely physician driven, right? The physician is the quote unquote business owner. Typically, you know, it's, it's, you know, Jane Smith, MD Inc. Right. That's typically the, the name of the practice, even if they have a brand, right. It's, it's, their medical degree and license, which is the business, right? And they are selling themselves first and foremost. And by the way, typically the doctors who have stepped out of the traditional system, you know, 10, 20 years ago and have been running these businesses for, for that long, they're they're pretty entrepreneurial, right? They they did that because they wanted to create a better, you know, quality of life for themselves earn more money over time, you know, develop some equity in a real, in a real business. And so, um, they're definitely the drivers of the, of the business itself. That doesn't mean that some of them haven't hired very talented office managers who work with them. Typically they have staff, you know, which, uh, you know, two to three people in addition to the doctor. And usually that's like a medical assistant or a nurse and then somebody who manages the operational side of the of the business and that includes sort of patient scheduling, you know, front desk reception duties as well as some of the back office stuff like whether it's accounting or bookkeeping or billing, 
and different doctors outsource some of that. Some of them do it all in-house. It just depends. From the years you've been operating so far and then perhaps studying peers or getting to know peers in similar industries or other regions, have you found that there's a core playbook for how to run a properly optimized practice business? Or is it is it so different region by region or by doctor that it's hard to say? A little bit of both, right? So there definitely is a core playbook in the sense that like, look, it, you have to maintain those patient relationships first and foremost. You have to develop a culture of service excellence. You have to, you know, I say often to our team that we're as much in the hospitality business as we are in the healthcare business because it's not, you can get healthcare in a lot of places for a lot cheaper, right? You could go to CVS, you know, minute clinics, or you could go to one medical, or you could go to the ER, or you, you know, you could see a traditional doctor all at various different price points and get different experiences. But essentially, you're, you're, you may still get, you know, diagnosed for your condition and get, get a prescription and, you know, and otherwise get care. What you're getting when you come to concierge medical offices, you're getting very hands-on support that is both accessible and efficient for you. And you're getting, again, a partner to walk with you in your journey, right? So that 24-7 access to your doctor is really the, the key distinguishing factor there. And so to your point, right, like we, and over time, we're refining this, but there is a playbook and we're refining it in terms of like what we want to be central to how we operate practices. And every time we do an acquisition, we look for what's working really well there that we may want to adopt and bring into our core playbook. And, you know, we may see things that don't work with what we're doing. And so we adjust accordingly. That said, everybody is a little different. <laughs> there, you know, every, every practice has their own special way of doing something. And we try to be as hands-off with that stuff. If it's really working for them, we let them continue to do it the way that they want to do it, you know, until it doesn't make sense anymore. So, for example, if you have a doctor who routinely sends out newsletters or postcards to their patients because that's the way that they've chosen to engage with their patients, we don't necessarily get rid of that, right? We would rather those doctors continue to engage with their patients the way that they have always done it and allow their patients to continue to hear from their doctor the way they've always heard from their doctor. We will build that into our economic model so that we can you know, provide the, the funds for that. But we, we wouldn't say, you know, from a top-down perspective that it's a one-size-fits-all. Maybe one day we'll be at that point where, we, where it's just too much for us to manage individual systems. But right now, I think part of what's made us an attractive partner to doctors who are selling is our ability to be flexible and let them kind of run things the way that they've, they've been running them. You know, we care about back-end efficiencies like billing, getting all that integrated. We want everyone to be on the same EMR eventually, but we don't have to do all that up front. We have the ability to be patient. We can wait for the right timing on those things. And so our process is more of a slow integration and sort of bringing them into the fold while learning from them and having them learn from us. Have any of your doctors started a podcast? No, they haven't. Although I'm sure they would be happy to speak with you or, or, or other doctors on this. There are, there are some concierge medicine podcasts. I can't say I've listened to too many of them, but there are some that are out there and some doctors, actually I'm wrong. 
we did have one doctor one time who who had it wasn't a podcast it was more of a a radio show where he was you know involved with that from time to time but i don't i don't know if he's still doing that have, have most of the podcasts you've seen been focused on that like doctor to patient relationship or is it more of the doctor like talking to or about or with other doctors about running a practice or treating patients so the case that i'm thinking of was much more about doctor to patient right it was like the doctor's in let me answer your questions you know t- basic you know wellness you know tips things like that there are doctors in the concierge world who are sort of like enterprising entrepreneurial type doctors who have done podcasts and, and things like that and newsletters and you know you know websites around the the latter right you know how to be a physician entrepreneur and what that looks like yeah that's pretty interesting i'm thinking of like a like a small version of peter atia or huberman or something like that could be kind of interesting from a concierge view i I think there probably are some i mean there are a few professional associations there's um a group called concierge medicine today which is like a kind of a national network of doctors who do you know they get together once a year for a conference and there's some kind of some shared a lot of sharing of resources and information through that group. And I think they may have some kind of podcast and newsletter. There's a group called Roamed, R-O-A-M-D. And that, that's more of like a, just a network of very like-minded physicians, all of whom, you know, work together to kind of share best practices and support each other. They kind of get into that, that territory somewhat. You mentioned an executive team with the chief medical officer. What other roles on a concierge medicine executive team exist and like which ones are fairly crucial to that expansion that you've talked about? Yeah. So in addition to the CMO that we have a director of practice administration who essentially is our team leader for all of our non-physician clinical staff, right? So all the MAs and what we call PCCs, patient care coordinators who work alongside the doctors in the clinic locations they all report up to her. And so that's a a critical role for practice operations. She has clinical training as well as business training. So like she's a nurse and has an MBA as well. And so she works to kind of bridge that gap between corporate needs in terms of like making sure operations are efficient and we have budgets and we're, you know, keeping an eye on costs and things like that. And then on the other hand, making sure that the service and clinical experience is excellent. And so and she can provide trainings and kind of work with, you know, those staff as a clinical leader. We have a VP of growth who is really focused on, again, kind of telling the story of what we do and, and both bringing new people into existing practices, as well as helping doctors market themselves and, and tell their stories to, you know, potential new patients. And then he's also working more broadly on figuring out new opportunities for growth. Who do we sell to? Is there, are there ways that we could package this for for example, you know, corporate teams, could corporate teams buy, you know, group packages of concierge memberships for their, for their executives, things like that. And so he's, he's working kind of on the sales side. And then on the finance side, we have a, we have a CFO, a controller, a senior accountant, and we also have a billing specialist. So they also sort of support revenue cycle uh, management and ongoing billing efforts as well as back-end accounting. Whenever we do a, like an acquisition, there's always a whole other layer of accounting work that's needed from that. We have a, uh, an EMR specialist that we just hired this year 
She's fantastic. She just got started last month. Her primary role is to work alongside all the various team members to help us with our Athena EMR. We found it was just more efficient to bring on a, a, a specialist who, who knew that product in-house. We have an IT specialist. We have an HR director. Both of those are part-time, sort of fractional positions. That's everybody. <laughs> I thought there was others. And if I missed anybody else, I'll, I'll mention it if it comes to me. That's the bulk of our, our team there. And how do you feel like your life as a CEO has changed over the last couple of years as the executive team has grown and you've added doctors? What do you feel like has changed the most? Well, I've been able to focus more on kind of broad, broad scale strategy instead of being just in the weeds all the time. You know, when you first start, and I think this is true for any searcher, you get, you get started and you just, by the nature of, of what you've just done, you bought this existing business and most likely one or more of the senior team has stepped out right as a result of the acquisition, you've stepped in you've got to learn the business and you've also got to fill in right for various roles. And in a lot of cases, right, you're not, you're buying a business. Some people buy businesses at scale, you know, they're, they're pretty big and they've got, you know, pre-established teams. Others don't. And in my, my case was the same. We started with a, with a five doctor practice that had just a few admin roles. We had, a, they had a practice manager and they had a couple medical assistants and me. And so that was it. So, you know, then I started building the corporate team, right? We hired a controller first and then we hired a COO and then we had several other roles we hired for after that. And so it was a process, right? Of slowly starting to hand off details. And every time, then you kind of hit a, a size threshold where you need to bring on new people. And so then you, you do that over and over and over again until you reach a point where, you know, your team is, is really scalable and you don't have to do that as much, but you're, you're hiring the, the the hiring becomes much more complex, right? Because you're hiring people for more senior roles and trying to make sure that they can really step in and take on real, you know, complex responsibilities. So I, I'll say this, like I'm less in the weeds. I'm spending a lot more time on hiring, but the other, the, the, the other side is I can, I now can hand off big chunks of, of the work I was doing two or three years ago to various folks. and and then focus on a lot more on growth, which has been a priority. In two years, how do you think it'll change more? Like which tasks do you do today that it will be handed off or what roles do you think you'll add? How does it look in two years? So we're thinking about bringing out a full-time CFO. We Our current CFO right now is fractional. And, and so I think that some of that stuff will come off my plate if we're able to bring on someone full-time. We have ambition for growth and, and on the M&A side. And so another key hire that we've been thinking through is, you know, whether or not to bring on someone to run M&A full-time or whether there's stuff on my plate that can come off that would enable me to focus more on M&A full-time. And so that's something we're kind of wrestling with right now, trying to think through who that next hire might be. And when you're thinking through those questions, like who is in that circle who you're asking for feedback on or like, hey, we're thinking about this question or in my role, how does it change? Are there peers you can chat with or is it your board? Like how do you utilize kind of the the network of peers you might have to help answer some of these questions? Yeah. So it's sort of a two-sided process for me. I, I always want to build consensus with my existing team. And so I will 
have informal conversations with them so that they're not in the dark, you know, about a potential new hire. And I want to make sure that they have the chance to interview critical new hires. If they're coming on board, I, I want to make sure that we're not hiring somebody who's not a good fit culturally with the team that's already here. And and I want to make sure that I have buy-in, right, from the folks that I work really closely with. I don't, I don't want them to ever feel blindsided by a new hire. That said, on, on senior level stuff, I rely heavily on the board. We have a small board and it's, it's a nimble board and they're really accessible to me, which has been fantastic. And so I use them as a sort of sounding board, no pun intended. Yeah. I'm just working with them closely to navigate those questions of who's the right fit for us at this particular time and what's, and really helping me refine my sense of what we're looking for, right? Because there's sometimes when we're hiring for a particular role that I don't, I don't always know just intuitively what that person might look like, but their, their scope and experience is so much wider. And they've seen this, you know, these roles develop at other companies, or they've seen candidates who really fit the profile. And they're able to share that with me in a way that gives me a lot more insight into who, who we want to bring aboard, who we're going to look for. And then I do a lot of, we, we, we recruiters. I do a lot of interviewing. We have a pretty extensive interview process. We use predictive index as a, not as a hiring tool per se, but as a, a fit evaluation tool. When we use predictive index, we're looking for, again, you know, cultural alignment as well as just to get a sense, just to give ourselves a vocabulary around who, who each person is sort of at their core. And, and so I use that also as a kind of a, a reflection, a tool for reflection along with kind of board input. Yeah. It sounds like the process for that, take the finance example, like a CFO hire versus a controller hire. There's a lot more diligence for that CFO hire, considering how much more senior the role is. What other types of tools or things change about that recruiting process versus the controller hire? Like, for example, I remember this Stanford talk that Andrew Saltoon was on, and he talked about how he would invite searcher search peers of his to come because he was running a larger company than they were. So like, like, come meet my CFO and see what a CFO at, at this company level or revenue level looks like so that you have like a comp to compare against. Is there anything, any other tools that you can think of that help with those senior hires? Not, not specifically like what Andrew offered, but you know, our, our board members sit on other boards and, you know, over the years, you know, they've been able to share insights with me like, okay, well, this CEO went through this process and this is how they thought about it. And this was the kind of candidate they were able to hire at this comp package, right? And so having those conversations is always helpful to navigate, you know, what you're seeing and, and, and to really test your assumptions, right? Like, is this normal? Is this the right price point? Is this the right level of skill for what we're, what, what we think we can get, at, you know, in this area and, and, and at this this cost. And so those are all the the questions that we kind of bat around on a regular basis. And, you know, it's a lot of times it's just phone calls that I make 
between, you know, me and, and a board member and we hash it out, you know, over 15 minutes. And then I, you know, go back to the grinding stone and try to figure out who, you know, who fits the bill. So, but yeah, that's, that's typically our process. For those senior roles, how far ahead are you trying to plan for? Like, are you, uh, there's, there's obviously a lot of growth that you want to have happen within the company while that person is working on your team. Are you planning for, I want to hire someone who I know can run the company you know, three years from now when it's grown a certain amount or five years from now, like how f- do you think that way? Or is there a different framing you have for finding roles that can scale with the company? Yeah, I, I will say I try to get out in front and hire people that can stay with us five or more years for sure. I'm always looking for those candidates who can lock in with us and who will be the right person five years or more down the line. Sometimes that means hiring from you know for someone with more firepower than we might need today. I'm generally okay with that, knowing that we're going to put that person to use. As long as you can find that person who's willing to get into the weeds early on, you know, and have the chance to kind of grow to their full potential over time, right? So that's always a balancing act. As for how we think about it broadly, we I've heard it said that at least in, in the search fund world, that critical hires are often made, you know, six months to a year after when you really needed somebody <laughs> or when you could have, you know, had that person. So I'm always going to be aware that like, okay, you know, the moment you think you need, you know, I don't know, a chief of staff, right? Like you really needed them six months ago, but you're just now realizing it. Right. And then you're kind of behind the eight ball. So I do have a lot of conversation with the board about who we're going to need. We do, we do a lot of org chart planning, kind of thinking through, okay, what does the org chart look like in five years? What does it look like in 10? Where are we, where do we think we're going to go? The the problem is it's just constantly a moving target, you know? So, you know, for as much speculation as we do, you're, you, I, at least I certainly feel like I am just trying to continue to, hold on and, 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 and get people in there as quick as we can because it, you know, the needs of the company evolve so fast. And so for lack of a better answer, yes, we try to hire well in advance of what we need. It's always a pro, you know, a little bit of an adventure. Moving to closing questions. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? The one thing that I I was thinking about this before this call, and I think something that I do more now than I, than I would have done as, um, you know, four years ago when we started this company is, is trust my gut. I think early on, you know, coming into this role, I was an inexperienced CEO and I was really afraid to trust my gut. I knew I had convictions. I knew I had entrepreneurial gumption, but on big decisions, I was really reluctant to, to trust my, my, my core instinct. I think my, my key view was, look, you, you never know what you don't know at least at this stage. And so rely on the instincts and the gut feelings of other people. And so I ran almost all my big decisions by a whole group of people, including my board and anybody else who I thought was, you know, an advisor at the time, whether it was, you know, another leader on the corporate team or a coach or, or, you know, my wife or whoever I was asking, constantly asking for advice. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that I avoided a lot of you know, big mistakes by doing that. So I'm thankful and I, I continue to do that quite a bit. I, I've just learned 
at least something I'm, I'm learning this year is that I, my core instincts at this point are, are sharpening and that I can trust myself a little bit more. And so I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to do that. And I'm trying to do that more. I'm trying to lean into the gut instincts that I've developed over four years, because I, I think that for the first time I'm starting to feel like they're trustworthy. And so I'm trying to do more of that. How often do you feel like your early instincts were actually correct or at least in the right direction? I think more often than, than not, this is a very vague answer. More often than not, my, my gut instincts were correct. I think where I was prone to prone to make mistakes though was that I was I was often too hasty. Like my gut would say, make this move now versus like make this move six months from now, right? I was super impatient. And I wanted to move faster. I think uh, the the one of the greatest areas where I think I avoided some pitfalls were in areas where I was encouraged just to operate with more patience and restraint, even if the the decision ended up being the same. Just because I I needed to like let some things play out or or prove themselves out. What's the best business you've ever seen? Let me let me issue a caveat here that I, you know when I think about the business the best business, right? You know, it's a subjective term. And so the business that I think of when I think about the business that I admire the most and the business that impresses me the most, that's Patagonia. I think not because of some like arbitrary revenue or performance metric that makes them the best by any, you know, objective measure, but I admire them for their intentionality I think this is a, a case of a true, like a truly purpose-driven business. I think they get the why better than anyone else. Like Simon Sinek says, start with why, figure out your core, you know, identity first. And, you know, what Yvonne Chouinard has been able to do over the past you know, 50 years in building that business is, is just an exemplary model of that. David Senra put out an episode with Founders Podcast on Yvonne Chouinard recently, his book, I'll let my people go surfing. That was really good. Have you listened to that? I haven't, but I've read the book and I've watched some of his talks and, and kind of followed his career, at least on the periphery from afar. Yeah, you, you might like the episode. I'll send it your way. I need to read the book too, though. Definitely a very unique entrepreneur. Yeah, I think so. He, I think he's just like ahead of his time on a lot of things like work life balance, right? Bring, you know, like for a long time, you know, even in the early days, way before people were encouraging things like extended family leave and, and things like that, he was bringing, people were bringing their kids to work with them and, you know, taking time off for things that they, you know, deemed to be important for their health and sanity and, and, you know, encouraging people to do that. You know, for every job opening at Patagonia, they have like 900 applicants. And so, it just speaks to the kind of the core of the culture that I think that he's built there. It, it, it ends up being a brilliant business advantage for them, right? Because they can literally skim from the top, you know, 0.1% every time without fail. They can get amazing talent. And look, you don't build a business billion dollar business without being like laser focused on, you know, outcomes and figuring out what makes this business sustainable and scalable, right? He's, he's certainly, you know, been able to do that. But I think I, I think I admire him most for you know being a rule breaker and and being willing to do things on his own terms. It's pretty amazing the degree of 
interest that folks have in any Patagonia role. I, I, I agree with you there. I think I've, I vaguely remember reading some sort of study, maybe it was of public companies, but something about CEOs who had daughters generally had better family benefits, like parental leave, vacation days. A lot of kind of people first benefits were improved with CEOs who had daughters, which I thought was pretty interesting. I'll see if I can find that and send it to you. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to read it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Daniel, so much for coming on the podcast. I always enjoy our conversation, so I'm glad we get to chat again, but hope I get to see you at some point in the Bay Area on a new trip. Yeah, likewise, Alex. Thanks for the time. Good to catch up. Thanks for having me on. This is super fun. And I hope our paths cross soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. Thank you.